Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. Ryan Tansom here. Super pumped for today's guest. His name is Jameson West. He is based out of Seattle and he owned an IT company called Arterian and he sold it a year ago on the date of our interview and he's got just some amazing wisdom, amazing gold nuggets because the sophistication that he ran his company on and the experience that he got by buying a couple companies and then the conscious effort that he put into packaging his company up before he sold it is I think very unique and the industry that he came from which was actually the same industry that I uh, used to be in has a lot of self regulation in how they view the maturity and the sophistication and the health of the company and I really think that his insights that he gives of how he was managing his company his books his reoccurring revenue that he dives into and all of his strategies is an absolute must listen to. So I hope you enjoy the interview with Jamison West. Without further ado, here he is. Jamison, how are you doing today? Good. Welcome to the Life After Business podcast. Really glad you were able to make it. Absolutely. So I'm really excited for this interview because you and I have gotten to know each other um, over the last couple months and you've got an awesome story and our backgrounds overlap quite a bit so it should be a fun it should be a fun conversation but for the sake of our listeners can you kind of give them a little bit of a backdrop of the industry that you're in the company that you ran and kind of how you got to where you are today Sure. Yeah, I'll try to keep a long story as short as I can. Um, I after I went to the University of Washington up here in Seattle, I um, I started working for someone doing doing uh, technical work, um, just as an IT director, and uh, then found myself um, with when that company was faltering a bit, I found myself needing to uh, find some other work, and I started consulting for a computer forensics company. Um, just kind of knew my way around a computer, even though my background from the University of Washington is a business administration. So I'm a business guy, but uh, my hobby was tech, a little different than most people who start their business by being a tech who fall into figuring out how to own a business. Kind of the, right. not, not the typical e-myth uh, story. I wasn't the technician who became the owner. It's kind mm-hmm. of the other way around. I was an I was a business guy looking for a looking for a business to build. Fortunately, I love technology, and so this was a long time ago, 1995. I started um, started my business started consulting um, mostly for one company, and then I through them I started finding other people who just needed business consulting. Uh, I can date myself a little bit and tell you email was just becoming a thing. Um, people, a few people had dial dial up modems. Um, and, and the internet was just kind of starting to come into its own. So not, not everybody you ran into knew what the, what the internet was or what a web page was yet. So, you know, that really started coming into normal conversations. So you, it was really started getting used as just like a one page business card in like 1993, <laughs> 1994. It's been that long. So, um, you know, I, I started finding clients who just didn't know 
what it was, needed to figure it out, needed some guidance. And, um, and so I started consulting and doing IT work and grew the business and, and then found myself 21 years later, um, 2000, fast forward a long, long ways to selling my business in 2016. And we went through a lot of iterations over those 21 years. It was a lot of growth, but um, I uh, you know, grew, it orga- grew it organically to about 10 people. Um, I did three acquisitions. We got to about 40 people and then we downsized a bit. Uh, we changed our business model from time and material consulting to kind of time and materials to fixed fee managed services. Uh, so yeah, it was, a, it's, it was an interesting long road. And, uh, and then ultimately sold to a larger company that had about 100 staff um, after wow. the acquisition of us. Um, boy, it, I think we literally signed the papers and closed a year ago today, January 27th, 2016. Well, that's very timely for the for the interview then, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. love it. Didn't, um, even, didn't even realize that until I said it. Yeah, actually, that's awesome. That's awesome. awesome. Um, so many things that I want to dive into. Um, one, because I, I was able to experience it a lot in our company imaging path too. Um, so in when we talk about building value in, in the business and like what is a company worth, um, you know, you went through some acquisitions, so you probably learned a lot as you were acquiring these companies. And then you also shifted your business model. So I want to kind of uh, dive into some of your experiences on that. You know, where, you know, how did those two uh past correlate or overlap where were you did you do the acquisitions pre or post you changing your business model um i really did the acquisitions after i changed my business model i changed my business model to become focused on fixed fee managed services and in order to provide that service well i needed to be able to scale you have to have a certain number of people to really deliver the depth and consistency of support that's required. Uh, it's not one-off consulting, you know, call me and I'll show up when I can get there. The expectations change, right? So mm-hmm. you know, people, and when they're paying you a fixed fee, they expect they're paying for your availability. Um, and, and so I, I needed scale. So that's why I started acquiring. Um, I, the first business I acquired was from a close friend of mine who I'm still very good friends with today. And I'm involved in his business and he's an, also an advisor of mine. And, and um, he went off and started something else, um, and, and uh, his business was just virtually identical to mine, smaller than mine. But we were um, we had managed over three years to share so many best practices that we ended up just it was as natural as anything to just say let's just put these two things together, and then he went and started something new. Uh, the second one I bought was a little more risky. It was a project company. So it didn't follow my business model, but I thought I could convert those clients to my business model. And I kept some people and some clients, but there was a lot of attrition. I mitigated that uh, by transferring the risk of the acquisition onto the seller uh, through earnout instead of guaranteed. Yep, yep. So we can talk more about how I structured all of these various deals. Um, and then my third one was another one that was a little more like Hours in terms of managed services and what they were offering, but it kind of it, it had a different uh, culture and a lower maturity level from an operational perspective. So that one we struggled with and ultimately had to unwind. So that nearly took us out. Um, huh. And then we went into a big recovery period at the end of. Well, I'm gonna get lose my years here. At the at the end of 2014. 
we were we were struggling because of that third acquisition that went a little sideways. That third acquisition happened in 2014, but it had a long tail of damage. Um, and then 2015, we just kind of we reorged and we got highly profitable uh, to gear ourselves to set, sell. So we had 12 months of high profitability and then sold. That's that's some awesome stuff that I want to again kind of unravel a little bit and. And before we do some of the mechanics, because I do want, I'm very curious about how you structured some of these deals with acquisitions and then how you, what you did to, to uh, revamp it up and, and kind of launch it. Um, but I want to dive into your transition to the, the business model because I was a part of that whole transition period and how how you have to go about doing it. But I, I'm curious in, in your perspective and for, for our listeners, the reason that they care is because a lot of people... Jameson, I see in a lot of entrepreneurs, they trade dollars for hours. And I think that the IT industry was was subject to that and a lot of industries are and how you were able to do that. And I'm curious on why you did that. So, you know, why did you do that? And then what that did for you in allowing you to create a platform of a business to scale. So, I yeah, I you know, I think what... What I realized, first of all, I, I, I there's a, so many ways I can go in this part of the conversation. But um, <laughs> I know you and I could probably talk for hours and hours about this. Yeah, it, I realized. I'll back up the story a little bit. I was doing and charging a fair price for my time, but I realized that I would be I would have multiple people wanting my time at the same time, so I couldn't provide to all of them. So I was limited to whatever I charge per hour for one client. And then I would have dead zones where nobody was asking me to do anything and I, we weren't making any money. And it was very frustrating because the demand was there. It just isn't flawlessly level, right? Especially if you're doing projects and other stuff like that. It goes up and down and scales and multiple people need you at once and nobody needs you for a while. And it, It's very, very difficult to run a profitable business. I think the mistake a lot of business owners make is this assumption that all of their clients – want to just get the best bang for the buck and don't care about working with a healthy company. At the end of the day, I needed to deliver a lot of value for my clients. And part of that was by running a profitable and healthy company. So my good clients always understood that because they're trying to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, what I, I came to this realization that what they are paying for is not just the time that I'm working. They're paying for, they want things to be easy. They want to have peace of mind that they're safe and taken care of it. They want to have to, so it's worry. They want, don't have to worry about it. And they're paying for my availability, even if I'm not doing anything. And I'm like, there's a premium to that, right? I have to go hire a bunch of staff to be ready to answer the phone. I got to charge for that. Even if the phone's not, I still got to pay them. I don't get to stop paying them. So that's kind of, I think where that advent of manage of that fixed fee service came from. I didn't make any of that up. I just believed in it. I learned it all through joining a peer group of people who do the same type of work. And I've been in that group of people that really, you know, I call it my pocket MBA, my time in uh, HTG is the name of the peer group that I'm specifically alluding to. Um, and, uh, you know, to this day, I'm, I'm involved with them. It's been eight or nine years since I started uh, you know, since I joined their ranks, gosh, it's probably 10 or 11 years, actually, if I think uh -huh. about it. And, 
And, you know, I, I just, I immediately realized, wow, I'm not alone trying to figure this puzzle out. Here's all these other people. And I took the best parts of all of it I could. I think I applied it well. Um, there's, there's a lot of different moving parts. And we really succeeded in, in shifting our business extremely fast. From January 1, 2007 to the end of, of 2007, we completely flipped our business model. I basically went to every client. I realized I did the math and I said, look, if I said, here's the average that each of these clients pay me um, on an average month, and then I'm going to have this new cost for my tools and all the stuff I'm going to do to, and I'm going to, I'm going to layer that cost in and I'm just going to go to every client and say, Hey, here's what I'm going to do. You're just going to pay me this new fixed fee monthly amount. It's not going to cost you much more, maybe 10 or 20% more a year. But now I'm available and you don't have to worry about calling me because I'm just going to do everything you need me to do no matter what. That if I went and told every client that and I raised my prices basically by 20%, that if 20% of my clients left, I would only have 80% of the work to do with 100% of the revenue. It's <laughs> a pretty good so, equation. <laughs> so I went and did it and ultimately lost like maybe one client, almost none. And all of a sudden I had a client that was dropping, you know, I had a business that was dropping 17 or 18 points EBITDA instead of four or five points EBITDA and a lot more breathing room to be profitable and add and scale and add clients. So we were able to invest more in the business, put money in the bank to put down payments on acquisitions and do some really good stuff. So, so what did that do to your mental health when you got that check the first of every month? Well, it, there's a, what I never quite got to, so there's two phases of the mental health, right? One is knowing that there's this core amount of money. I don't have to go sell or watch the dollars and hit that day in the month on the 23rd where I know I've covered my expenses in the last <laughs> week. It's how you make your... Now, I didn't have to do that anymore. So that was nice. I knew that I had this core but you know, one of the big metrics and KPIs I remember we used to follow, we stopped we stopped after doing a couple of years, was everybody wants to get to the point where their their monthly recurring revenue covers a hundred percent of their cogs and overhead. Like literally everything you do beyond your fixed monthly fee is profit or bottom line or margin, I should say. It's gonna be they're gonna have additional cost of goods sold, maybe. But it's you can literally do nothing over and above your fixed monthly fees and, and have a, a break-even company. That's pretty awesome. Um, I never got there. Few companies do uh, because you're typically offering some other services, whether it's selling product or doing some outside consulting or professional services work that's outside your recurring monthly. Mm -hmm. So I always had additional cost for the people who drove that. And my MRR never quite covered those people. But the, but the, your peace of mind, I mean, every time you know you can rely on a contract, uh, certainly you've mitigated risk and that feels good. So did you know when you were doing this, I mean, obviously you had a lot of reasons to do it and you did it in a very um, very good execution and a good fashion. It, did you understand what it was doing to the value of your business while you were doing it? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean... Yeah, having recurring having recurring revenue you so in through my acquisitions and through my sale the value you can place on good recurring revenue is very very high to the right well okay I'll back up a little bit a, a great quote that 
that uh, our M&A firm, a guy, a consultant that we worked with very closely, David Schaffron, he's the guy who used this. He and I have actually presented multiple times together on M&A. Me as the client, he is the M&A advisor. And his favorite quote was, values in the eye of the beholder. So first of all, the seller can think whatever the seller wants to think. And you can go to two different people. One will offer you twice as much for your business than the other. And guess what? They're both right. Because, <laughs> yep. because the seller really doesn't have a say in what the value of their business is. However, because and, and you know, I really believe that if in your primary business model, I mean if 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 you're doing a tremendous amount of project where you have all these projects that perfectly align to the buyer, they may not care about your recurring revenue. They may not they, we don't do managed services. We want a bunch of big clients who do a ton of projects. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden that recurring revenue is not valuable to them. Now, I was running a company that was focused on managed services and recurring revenue, and I knew that the targets to acquire me were going to be people who valued that side or that that portion of the revenue. I knew that I had a mix of revenue that was 60% recurring managed services revenue, 20% product, and 20% professional services, roughly. I knew what my mix was. It was an intentional mix, and and putting contracts in place that protected that recurring revenue for a year or whatever, um, and having long-term clients who were satisfied in multiple years into those contracts all increased the value because it reduced the risk to the buyer of acquiring those contracts. So yeah, I was, I was adeptly aware of what I was doing to the value in the multiple of EBITDA as I, as I made that change. I love it. So the, uh, the, term that I constantly like to hammer my clients with or people I know is, is transferable value, right? Like how easy is it for me to grab your cash flow? <laughs> and how like anything that is a challenge with that, you just become discounted by, right? It's like, well, if we don't have contracts, if we don't have this, and then you just keep getting dinged until it's not worth anything. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Professional services revenue, product revenue to a managed services company, there's little or no value in that. And you'll typically, you know, it depends on how a deal is structured, but we see a lot of people these days just doing that as earn out, either discounting it as part of the, uh, as part of the payment or just doing it as earn out. Like it's an ongoing commission that you have zero control over because they'd expect it to go away anyway. So there's really no, from a seller's perspective, there's often little or no value in that. So kind of curious, like, you know, with your conscious, um, attention to this and and plan. Where did you get that from? Was it someone that had told you that? Was it just kind of the nature of your background? Like, what, where where did it all come from? Um, it all came through in- industry relationships, starting with people who I'd met through the peer groups. Um, but there were some specific people. Our M and A advisors certainly um, helped us develop. It was their model that I really bought into in terms of how the four, I have kind of four elements of a deal. Um, that was theirs. Instead of just doing a strict multiple of EBITDA, we like to break it down a little differently. And I, I really like the way that they broke it down. As a matter of fact, my sale, the company that acquired me used the same M&A brokers who I used when I did all my acquisitions. So I've been on both ends, both sides of the table hmm. with them. Um, uh, so that that was kind of interesting. So all my deals were structured extremely similar, although there's a lot of deals in certain companies who go out with with high levels of financing who will just write a check. 
Um, and they base that more on a multiple of EBITDA, but they, like you said, they discount the mix of revenue that is of higher risk to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but but they may pay it all up front or something like that. So so when you were doing all this, um, obviously you having the exit in mind, did you have a size that you wanted to reach? Did you have a certain amount of employees, a certain time? What was What was some of the end criteria for you? Yeah, I didn't hit my end criteria. Be really clear. I was uh, I had a goal of my end criteria was uh, understanding where the industry was at and understanding the multiple I could hit when I cert- hit a certain revenue number. So you kind of get over there's certain revenue hurdles where different types of investors are willing to spend higher multiples of EBITDA. And so having an understanding just through research and through the M&A firm I was using everything else I knew where I needed to be from a revenue and EBITDA perspective to start hitting higher multiples. I didn't hit my goals there, but what I did do was make sure that the revenue I had was of high value and did the most I could do with it. Um, I got more than a fair multiple of EBITDA on my deal, but they also mitigated on my sale, but they also mitigated the risk well. So um, ultimately, it ended up about where I thought it would. I mean, I'm about I'm only a year into it out of three years of getting paid out, but I know now with near certainty um, about where it's going to actually end up, and it'll be pretty close to what I expected. Um, so yeah, and I'd be happy to share with you kind of what the, our deal structure was. It made a lot of sense to me. Yeah, let, let, why don't you walk our listeners through it? Yeah, just real quickly. I think in terms of kind of two chunks of, and you can use any of these, I divide these four elements of a structure into into two pieces. One is your guaranteed pieces and then your, your earnout piece. So the three guaranteed pieces can consist of the following, equity, a down payment, and guaranteed payments over time. And then the non-guaranteed piece is your earnout, basically a commission on various types of revenue that may come in. So my deals had those four pieces. Um, when I did my first two acquisitions, there was the first acquisition didn't have equity in it. Um, my first acquisition, I had a down payment, I guaranteed payments for 36 months, and I had earnout for 36 months. My second one had a little equity mix in there, but it just, so it had all four elements. And then my sale had, uh, didn't have equity in it, but it had the other three elements. So my sale was much like my first acquisition. Um, and what's nice is that from a buyer's perspective, you can look at the revenue mix and say, what, how much revenue is sitting in a high-risk bucket, like professional services and product, and what revenue mix is sitting in a low-risk uh, bucket like managed services with fixed fee contracts and one year agreements and how many are in there and how long have they been there and so you can do some risk calculations and basically say you know we think we can structure this one 70% guaranteed 30% earnout and and the more you move to earnout the more you're shifting the risk onto the seller because it's a seller fi- everything i'm describing is primarily seller finance deals which is how i've done all my deals um works really well because the seller can often get a little bit more money, but they have to have a little bit more skin in the game, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, it works really well from that perspective. And uh, it, it allowed me to do acquisitions I couldn't have possibly afforded to do. I didn't want to get a bank note to do it. I wanted to be able to 
you know, really finance the deal and, and, and have the seller share some risk and have some skin in the game because then they were more motivated to make sure that that revenue stuck with the company. So what did you, what were, what would be like one thing that you learned that didn't go the way you thought? Well, I, actually two questions. One, the first one is what did you learn that didn't go well while you were the acquirer that you used as your benefit to your benefit when you sold? Does that make sense? Yep. Yep. What did I learn that I then found myself in there? So I think that's interesting. Um, it's hard. I'd never quantified it that way. I'm, I'm sure there's, there's plenty of answers to that question. Um, I learned a lot over the years of acquiring and things that I would change, but I think maybe a key one is just, I, I did not realize, you know, people talk about, well, good customers with recurring revenue are just as valuable regardless of the contract or the length of contract they have. And at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, the contract and the length of the contract does matter. Um, so I knew that I had to have, we, and before I sold, I had my clients on, they weren't particularly long agreements, but they were very well written agreements, a very good attorney. And we had strong contracts. We had great relationships. Our clients were happy to sign them. Uh, but we had extremely strong contracts um, and they were fair, but they were they were very detailed and it allowed it allowed the buyer to feel very comfortable and confident that there was value in those contracts. They were consistent. They were signed. They were you know, there was no must, no fuss. So when I did an acquisition and they had, yeah, they we have some agreements out there. I don't know where the signed versions are. They all have terms. <laughs> Yeah, I can't put value on that. And they were shocked that I didn't put the same value on that as I would if everything had been in order and done correctly. So we were really, really good that last year of making sure that we had a documented signed contract for every single client. Um, and that, that, that was really important because, you know, right after an acquisition, some clients get a little shaky for a while and they kind of they are they are forced to kind of write it out a little bit and and ultimately that that was really important because they come back around once the integration's done it's always better than some clients they get it they're fine some get cold feet real quick. Well, am I going to have my same account rep as my engineer going to be there? He always takes me out to Chili's every you know month, all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, and a lot of that does change, and then they kind of got to get adjusted to the new normal. And oftentimes, in the new normal is usually way better than if they were to jump ship and try to start over somewhere because mm-hmm. they're, you're not starting from ground zero. So, but you've kind of got this contract to guarantee the revenue, and it, it does create a lot of value to the buyer. I think you hit the nail on the head there. I, uh, it, and a little bit of a tangent. Um, you know, when that's why I, as a copier company, what Imaging Path was when we got into IT services like what you were doing. I'd, I'd be able to take over accounts from people because they'd be on no contracts and I'd be like, well, hey, why don't you do this here? And I I was doing the exact stuff that you were and we'd be able to lock them in on 36 months. And so you're protecting, you're building a moat around your customers. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the second question that I had uh, around that same kind of uh, topic was, you said that that third acquisition kind of went south. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it, it was no bad intent on anyone's part. It was just one of those things that happens. Um, there was a, you know, I had, I think that at the end of the day, the leadership on that 
on the and that acquisition and then my leadership styles were extremely different and we and our goal was to bring the companies together this was almost a 100% equity deal it was more of a merge than an acquisition and uh, so it was vastly different than my other deals we were really trying to gear up to scale um, but ultimately the actual two things three things three things that were very unexpected for me one was the difference in culture between kind of how just his team worked together, acted, was, wasn't was wrong because it was their culture, but it wasn't our culture. And the two could not come together. I mean, it, it was obvious right out of the gate that we had it. It, it was an us versus them. We moved them into our offices and they wanted to sit together in a diff separately and do, and they didn't, they were, they just didn't mix with our people and our people mm -hmm. didn't mix with them. So it was just as much our fault as theirs or no fault. I should take the word fault out of that yep. sentence and just say it was, it was just not going to happen. Um, so <laughs> yeah. the problem is you can't run a company that way for very long, right? Like as soon as we wanted to bring our clients together, one half of the team had to go or I was about twice the size he was. So mm -hmm. his, his third of the team started attriting very quickly because it just wasn't, we couldn't, we couldn't do it unless we could bring the culture together. And there were one or two exceptions um, who stuck with us for a long time. One who's still with the parent company I sold to today. Um, the other, the second thing, cause I said there were three, right? The yep. second thing was I'd call operational maturity. This wasn't their fault either. We were a more operational mature company because we'd been around long, a little longer. We were uh, more diligent about putting strong processes in place. And we were, and at the end of the day, what really mattered is we were twice their size and we had been bigger for longer. They were growing really fast, but we'd been bigger for longer. So we demanded process to get profits. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, um, I was like, I was pretty proud of our operational maturity level, OML, I like we call it. Um, and then I sold to this other company who is now running my old business and their operational maturity is the same gap between I had and the one I acquired. They're that much higher. I mean, they run like really high, really mature, which is awesome. But I mean, they have 100 staff, right? So they need that level of maturity to be profitable and deliver value to their clients. So I think I think it's hard for... We have this conversation all the time. It's hard to have clients or do acquisitions when your operational maturity levels between the two are too far out of whack. It's a real problem. So um, I do know what it is because obviously familiar with the industry, but uh, can you explain to the listeners what the operational maturity is be, or operational maturity level is because it's very unique to the IT industry, the managed service industry. It's I've never seen it and I've not seen – you know, business brokers or M&A advisors discuss it in other industries. I mean, it's very unique. It's almost like a self-regulation. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. It's come from, uh, I think, you know, so first of all, I would say it absolutely exists in every business everywhere, no matter what, right? So, but yep. it's used as a term and a measurement stick way more in this industry. Absolutely fair. Um, I heard it from, and I wouldn't be surprised if it came up, it's a, a company called Service Leadership. Um guy named Paul Dipple, um, and he is, he knows his stuff, uh, inside and out, one of the smartest guys I've ever, I really enjoy listening to him getting, I've gotten to know him pretty well over the years. And this is, you know, a, a lot of this M&A stuff, certainly the operational maturity stuff and, and how you look at, uh, 
best in class. And, and I talked a little bit about my primary business model. All of that is SLI stuff. Um, and they really drive the top quadrant of the industry. Um, they are most of the top client quadrant of the industry are their clients. We use their indexing to measure best in class performance for, for how we're doing in every part of our GNL of our GL, sorry, PNL. Um, and so it's been really, um, you know, that's where, that's where it came from. So operational maturity is really a measurement of how optimized you are within your business model. So, you know, if, if you don't have processes, if you don't have commissions, if you don't have the right mix of revenue, if you don't have just, I could go on and on and on. If you don't have the right systems in place, CRM, uh, gap accounting standards, it, it measures all the things you do in your company to where if you've built like a crisp, perfect machine that just flawlessly drops 25% EBITDA of the bottom line without every, everybody knows exactly what to do because they walk in and they push the same button at the same time every day <laughs> and 25% drops out the bottom. That's a perfect OML and a startup company with a guy who sells anything to anybody and then calls John down the street to try and figure it out afterward with no process. And uh, you know, that's the bottom of the scale. And frankly, as you work from being a small startup to being a large enterprise, you move yourself up that maturity scale. But if you get too big and you don't have enough maturity, you're open to collapse. If you get too mature or you have put in too much process in place, you can't afford to do that when you're too small. So you sacrifice profit. So it's a balance, right? You have mm -hmm. to balance. You get more mature as you scale up. And people tend to grow faster when they can move into higher operational maturity at a younger stage in their business. And that's what that peer group and SLI, which are partners, um, were able to provide me, right? Is here's how I can line that up um, and start getting more mature earlier so that I can afford to do these acquisitions so I can then scale the business and then ratchet up my maturity level. And then the next thing that happens is you, gotta, you, you start getting smart and you start measuring your client's maturity level. Well, I can't, as a high-quality, high-mature process company, I have to charge for that. And a low-maturity client is not going to be a good fit. So all of a sudden, I'm out looking for clients who, have, who are as mature as we are. And we can offer a much higher value of service and charge more money for that. And they, they want us to do that because they want mature companies who have all those processes in place, right? So you got to line those up. And, uh, and that was really important to us. I, I absolutely love it. I mean, it, for us, it, like it, it changed our whole mentality at our company because like, I mean, our sales reps would be like, Hey, we can go, you know, we can take on this customer at 50 bucks, uh, 50 bucks ahead because of what I'm like. And when you, when you're able to judge your clients on the same kind of ranking, it, it changes your whole world and like how you view your clients, view yourself, view your competitors and everything. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so did you use that philosophy too when you were looking at your other um, acquisitions? I mean, explain how when you were looking, I mean, did you have like a, something that was out of range where you didn't look at someone because of the, the gap between the two? Or like how? No, we, we uh, well, A, yes, I would say there's absolutely people we wouldn't consider acquiring because we knew the maturity level was so far off that we never retained their clients and that nobody who worked there could possibly work in our organization. But like, so just no, but we also went way off our maturity level with known risks and mitigated it by doing earnouts. So my second acquisition I talked about primarily did, they did some 
time and material billing stuff. And then mostly they just did projects, projects, mm-hmm. projects, projects. And they knew they needed managed service offering. They had no idea how many of their clients might stick if they went and offered it. They just knew that they were having to do all these projects and then go back and try to do their best to help support their clients because most of them didn't have IT staff. So it was a total risk. So I did give them a down payment and some equity and some guaranteed payments over time, but it was as a percentage of the deal, it was vastly smaller than my first deal that was almost that was very high guaranteed and low risk, so very low earn out. My second acquisition was very low guaranteed and very high earn out. So I transferred the risk to them and said, that's okay. You know, if people, if staff have to go and clients go, I've mitigated that risk. Got it, got it. So kind of going into the your your transition. What was it that triggered you to finally, because in, in, in 2015 at the beginning of it, you said you started to revamp it. So what did you do in 2015 that really allowed you to buckle down? And then why did you pick the timing that you did to, to, to exit? So two things. Uh, well, a couple things. I'll, I'll, I'll try to. So the first thing I did is I, I had a COO. She was wonderful. She recognized that we had put together, her and I together recognized we'd put together a leadership team that was geared to be at 50 or 60 people. And we were back down to about 28 people after unwinding our third acquisition. And so our overhead was un, was not tenable. Um, and we didn't know how to fix it. Um, her and I had high salaries. That alone was probably too much for the business. And she recommended a consultant that came in and just did a great job kind of walking us through a budget exercise and planning exercise through 24, 2015. Um, And ultimately, that also concluded with her leaving the business, which had to happen just for us to afford to get out of our mess. Um, So we put together a great plan for that. And and that's when we started, you know, really getting profitable. It's kind of funny because business owners don't love their job when it's, they, they want to sell when they're not making any money and they don't want to sell when they're making a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Which kind of makes sense on one hand. It's kind of completely dumb on the other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I think I think what ultimately brought me to the sale point is there were two things. One is, well, I'll, I'll throw a third one on. The third one, the simple one, is I, I knew I now had company that was worth real money, right? So that, that was one. It's kind of like, hey, the iron's hot right now. I don't know if I can keep it hot. It's been, you know, 21 years. It's had been had bumps and bruises, and it's gone up and down. And but it really led to the other two. There was an opportunity because I knew I had the value high. Um, I a was not enjoying operating a traditional managed service company. I'm a I'm a complete entrepreneur. Um, it was we talk about operational maturity. I get it. I can talk about it. I think it's neat. Um, it's no longer entrepreneurial. You get a business to a certain size, <laughs> entrepreneur gets bored because now it has to be operated by somebody. Black, black belt, Six Sigma kind of stuff, right? Yeah. And I, it's not, I mean, I can do it, but under duress. <laughs> I get it. I get uh, it, man. <laughs> but that's, that's my passion. And um, so I was no longer feeling passionate. What I was passionate about, which leads me to what I have been doing since, is I'm passionate about you know, cloud and the change, the paradigm shift we're seeing in the market and technology. And I think that's awesome. But I had a few clients that I was really pushing to go do crazy new things and, and experiment with me in the cloud. And I became a huge Microsoft golden boy. You know, I was, I'm one of their star partners and and uh, just out there really pushing for this, for, for 
what what I think this world's becoming rapidly, and, I, and I'm excited about it. So I I was bored. I couldn't pivot a business like that fast enough. It was I always said, uh, you know, do I want to do I want to shift slowly, or do I want an evolution, or do I want a revolution? And I chose the revolution. I'm going to sell what I was doing and just start what I want to do from scratch. So that's what I chose. I chose the revolution. Uh, and I think the last thing is just the having a hundred percent of my eggs in one basket. Um, after 20 years, and my kids are, you know, preteen, and and my wife is going, hey, let's let's take a few chips off the table. Um, there was an opportunity to kind of hit all those things at once. I had some value. I had the family saying, take a deep breath. Let's take some chips off the table and try something else. And then I was kind of getting tired of operating. And so Very. just sticking together at the right time. Very well articulated and thought out. I, I I really enjoy listening to that. Actually, um, what so what was the experience like selling to a bigger player? I mean, you've been working for them for a year now. What is it like going through that transition, and and what is it like working for someone else? Well, so it's been interesting. Um, I could talk about that for a long time too, but I'll keep it brief. I think. Um, so first thing was, is I, I told them, I mean, the day we started talking, they were like, what, what was my role going to be? And immediately I said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to really run my old business. I'm not interested. I want to go start a new business. So I sort of work for them. I do. I, I absolutely report to their CEO. Um, I have uh, since the sale um, a year ago. But ultimately, um I started a new business. I kept the brand Arterian and I'm the president of Arterian and I have equity in that. I don't have equity in what I sold to Aldridge, which is the parent company. I have equity in, in the company that in the brand that I basically, we rolled it into a new LLC and Aldridge owns some and I own some, I have a minority share of it. Um, and I, and I, I liked that because I got to continue being entrepreneurial and it allowed me to do what I was talking about before, the revolution instead of evolution. So I'm out there really um, pushing, uh, selling cloud services, doing some fun stuff. And, and, uh, and, and I've been enjoying that for the past year. And what's interesting is, that, you know, I, I'm going to come back to the operational maturity level because that, that engagement's coming to an end. We're going we're gonna to stop that in a month. So February 28th will be the last day that I'm that I'm part of the organization. Um, you know, mutual decision and and uh, very uh, you know we great leadership team at Aldridge. Uh, we just had our offsite last week in in Houston and and uh, and I I think it's going to be a very very interesting time. They're going to keep the Aldridge business and see. I'm sorry, the Arterian business as well as the Aldridge business. And uh, and continue to take care of those customers, um, and I'm going to go do something new. Um, ultimately, the reason that that didn't work after a year of doing it was right back to that same thing: at operational maturity level. I needed at Arterian. I was out saying I'm going to start this new business and do this new thing. And I, and really, from a revenue perspective, if you look like the, the recurring revenue that we were driving, the professional services revenue. It was a great start, but we were doing it carrying this giant anchor that was a very highly mature 100-person company that put very defined parameters that took a long time to scope projects that had complex invoicing and administrative that burdened me with costs that I that were absolutely appropriate for them, 
um, but made no sense for me trying to be a dynamic, you know, get things done, scrap, be scrappy because I, <laughs> I needed to be a, a two OML and they're a four OML, right? So ultimately that therein lied the rub. Um, we both learned a lot out of it and really gained a lot out of it because they, they got a lot of, uh, they got a lot of uh, strategic help out of me on how they're pivoting. They're doing the evolution, not the revolution with Aldridge, which is a brilliant, strategy for them because they have a large revenue and client base but they are they got some real help from both me and my team uh, particularly you know my right hand is now their vice president of technology and he's a great driver for for cloud technology so now they've, they've really got a lot of gains there and I really got a nice little period of time where I got to go try to do what I wanted to do um, in a safe way that uh, I didn't have to put up all the I didn't have to put up all the risk. They shared in that risk with me. So that was a lot of fun. Um, it was awesome. a great That's year. Awesome. And so now I now a month from now, I'm, I'm, I get a start anew, which I'm super excited about. So my question is, what is in, on the future for your revolution? <laughs> yeah, next, next phase. Um, you know, I've got, I've got two different, uh, I've got two different things uh, sitting in front of me. I'm super excited about both, both of them. Um, one is I've got, uh, there's a lot of it providers out there who are trying to navigate how they get into the, into the cloud. What's their strategy for pivoting from traditional infrastructure managed services to what, what does this paradigm shift really mean? A lot of them think they get it. I'm going to put mail in office 365 and I'm a cloud provider and that's not it. That's just shifting a workload from here to there. Um, there's really a paradigm shift happening, and and um, so I'm working with HTG, and I'm, I think I could, I may build a consulting practice for IT providers to help them in their path in that way. So uh, serious consideration there. Um, I will at least do some of that, no matter what, because I I just want to stay connected and be part of that world, and I really enjoy it. I also have another opportunity on the on the table to get really involved with the software platform I'm super excited about and it would really allow me to really become entrepreneurial again. It's uh, uh, and, uh, and there could be more news one way or the other very shortly. Um, so yeah, we'll see what the future holds. That sounds super exciting. So what is the best way our listeners can get a hold of you? Uh, email me, shoot me a note. It's jameson.west at outlook.com, J-A-M-I-S-O-N dot west at outlook.com and yeah i'd be happy to you know connect or answer questions or whatever i can do that'd be that'd, i'd be happy to do so jameson thanks so much for coming on the show absolutely thank you 